0: Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices.
1: It's one of the jobs I learned the most in about myself. So when people find themselves in jobs they don't like, it's not bad. Don't keep it for a long time, but it's a great learning and some experience you can put up in, in your backpack. Small thing. Then he pointed at it was, it was big day for me the stage. You can hear. Then he pointed at the machine. There's a filling. So tell me about this. I go okay. Uh, Rating speed of forty thousand bottles per hour. The bottleneck is the washer. It's fully depreciated, which I love because it means you know very profitable. Blah 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 blah. blah. And he goes okay, very good. Forklift drive. And then he he points at one of the persons and said, now tell me about her. And I couldn't say anything. So he says, interesting, you know more about your machines than you know about your people. We can all play a role. So the one pledge I would have is, let's all give back. But even before that, let's start making, giving a part of curriculum in
0: in all uh, all all of the education institutions. Welcome to Leaders Talk, the interview podcast for better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. My name is Carsten Draht, and I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. And I'm very much looking forward to our guest today. His name is Ulrich Nehammer. Ulrich um, has been a CEO for many decades in many different countries, um, in Asia, in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe. worked for the Coca-Cola companies, or the Coca-Cola ecosystem, Uh, worked for Salesforce, and uh, I would say he's a very unique combination of a leader who values cutthroat competition on the one hand side, combined with deep values um, for humans, for humanity, for the world. And um, yeah, he will take us on a journey, how he kind of grew into this role, what was challenging for him. It's a very personal interview. It's a little longer than the usual one. So maybe... You will uh, have to spread it over different uh, episodes of listening. But it's definitely worth the while. Highly recommended. Um, great lessons on leadership. Great lessons on how to organize, change, transformation. How to win people's heart. How to be humane in tough times where you have to let go of people. Uh, very impressive. I'm, I'm really impressed uh, by this conversation. So you can really look forward to that. And uh, drop me a line with your thoughts. Um, with your reflections on that, anything that you agree or disagree with, karsten.draft at leadership-choices.com. Looking very much forward to your thoughts, to your feedback. And uh, now over to the conversation with Ulrich. A very warm welcome to Ulrich Nehammer. Ulrich, it's awesome to have you in the show. Welcome.
1: So great to be with you, Karsten. Thank you very much.
0: Ulrich, um, hard to explain who you are, you have an uh, amazing business career, you've been um, for 24 years with Coca-Cola in multiple instances and we will talk about that in more details, you've been in a senior management role in, in Salesforce, what do you do today, how would you describe who you are?
1: First of all, I'm a father and to Christian, 24 years old, he is a uh, I'm visiting him later today I'm catching a flight to Madrid he's starting a job in Madrid so we're going to visit him and get him ready uh, for his new job that starts first of November secondly I'm a husband uh, to Andrea and then uh, I'm a son for both my parents have 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 left us but uh, I'm a son and I'm a brother but to my sister Christina but more you know but when that's done then as a business I'm right now running a a private equity pledge fund with a with a friend of mine started as a hobby and then it became a reasonable good business and uh, and that's what I'm doing now and I'm and I'm also
0: enjoying life uh, having less stress than what I'm used to. Great, great work. So you're from Denmark originally. Nobody's perfect. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> and uh, you started actually your. Korea, right after school, you went into the military, spent two years there, and you became first lieutenant. Is that like a mandatory thing or was this an active choice? So there was an active choice. In, in Denmark,
1: it's sort of a lottery. You pick a number. If the number is under a certain uh, value, you have to serve. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how many soldiers is needed in, in that year. Um, but I decided to become an officer by the reserve. And uh, I did that because I think throughout high school, um, it was clear that I need a little bit of, uh, of maturity. And uh, so the army can certainly help with that. And I think it was one of the best leadership lessons I ever had. You know, you're, you're 22 years old, Carsten, and, and uh, I think I was 20 at that time. And you have responsibility for 100 soldiers, uh, where I was hardly able to have responsibility for myself throughout high school. So this was a very maturing experience that I think um, is very helpful and was very helpful as a, as a solid fundament of my career.
0: So I think there's a lot of prejudices today about leadership styles in, in armies, in, in you know, German Bundeswehr or in the Danish army. So how would you describe what, what did you learn? Any, what did you learn about leading others, leading yourself in that time?
1: Uh, that's a good question. And I will say the army in Denmark, at least, was way ahead of most companies in terms of how do you motivate. Because you have to remember, most of these soldiers didn't want to be there. So they didn't want to be there and they all took a massive salary cut from wherever they were. Because where I went, there was typical people who postponed their military service. So all of a sudden, you know, they're 25 or well, all of them are older than me. They have a job. and Now they have to have a a cotton salary for nine to 12 months and they don't want to be there. So the army was actually in Denmark at that time ahead of most leadership theories and how do you motivate people. And I learned a lot about myself that um, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. It's a very important lesson. Uh, All of a sudden, when you have responsibility for other people, um, you don't necessarily need to be the last person that leaves the bar. Uh, because you have something that you need to be responsible for the next day so so i I, I learned a lot about leadership and and putting yourself in others other people's shoes about organization. Uh, if you ask people working with me um the last thirty years, they'll probably say I'm reasonable, unorganized, but it was a lot worse before the army.
0: <laughs> okay, great and and after the army you 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 left and then you. Went to study marketing. Um, yes. What was your thesis about Ulrich? That, that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I wrote the thesis. Uh, it was, I did it in London for Coca Cola. That's why I joined Coca Cola later. I wrote my thesis about environmentally friendly packaging as a sales parameter.
0: And what was your conclusion of the thesis? <laughs> I knew you would go there.
1: <laughs> my, my conclusion was it's never going to be a sales parameter. Okay. Because the consumers are not willing to pay the extra money that was necessary. Uh, to, to I mean, it was more costly to do environmentally friendly packaging and consumers will never pay for it. So mm-hmm. that was totally wrong. So I was ahead of my time, but I had the wrong conclusion. The interesting <laughs> thing was the professor, he thought I was right as well. Okay. I'm not going to mention
0: his name. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why not? You know, <laughs> <starts. Yeah. laughs> no. I think it was Costani who said... Um, Uh, predictions are always difficult uh, especially when they regard the future right because it's kind of hard (laughs) to predict and and then you joined coke but you did a conscious move where everybody said go west you made the conscious move to go east now take us back to that time so 89 the wall came down uh, the the, um, former russian or or, or Warsaw block was kind of disassembling so what did you do so
1: you're actually right. You Remember that saying, you go west, young man. And I just saw Reagan speaking in front of Brandenburger gate and saying, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. And I followed that as the wall came down, particularly being in the army at that time. We had one enemy, Russia, you know, when there was exercise, it was all about Russia, you know, the, the war, the Warsaw Pact. So it was, uh, it was really interesting, uh, to make that choice, and I said, I can learn a lot more from businesses from scratch if I go to the, to the East. So I actually went to Muta Kent at that time. Um, I just finished my, my education in, uh, in marketing, and I went to Muta and said, Muta, I would love... I wrote, I've written this uh, thesis for Coca-Cola, and
0: I would love to come and work in Eastern Europe. What do you think? So Muta, and Muta Kent, thought, for those who don't know, was the, the big boss of Coca-Cola worldwide, right? At that time,
1: and there's a lesson in that, at that time, he was the division president of Eastern and Central Europe. Mm. So he has not, at that time, been the CEO yet. And there's a lesson in that. Um, And so I went to Muta and Muta said, "Uh, okay, uh, interesting. Try to go to Poland. And I was excited because I felt, you know, if I, with a marketing degree in, in, in Denmark, go to a company... I would be specialized in a very small niche. And if you go to Poland, at that time, Krakow, I was there before McDonald's custom. So, um, you know, there was no warehouses. There was no warehouse. It was the wild east. So I I arrived there and and started my job. And the first time there was a truck coming from Warsaw where the production center was, and we opened up the Krakow um, depot. And I remember, I have a military background. I'm like, all of these amazing people were actually the ones I thought were the enemy less than two, three years ago. So it was emotional. It was, a, emotion was very interesting, I think, and a great, a great lesson. But anyway, so the first truck arrives from Warsaw into the depot and I said, let's get the forklift out so we can un- offload. And we go, but we don't have a forklift. <laughs> so I said, we're not going to do this by hand. It was a big truck. So I went over to the wholesaler next door and he spoke a little bit of German. So I was with my, at that time, Schuldeutsch. I was, uh, back and forth with him and he said, so what do you need to offload? I said, Coca Cola. And he said, ah, how much does it cost? I go, I don't know. So I go back and ask what it, what it, what it cost. And I sold the first truckload. Uh, so he said, okay, I'll buy it. So I sold the first truckload before it even hits the, before it even hit the warehouse. So that was an incredible time and a very good decision not to go for prestige because all of my friends was laughing at me when I took a job as an assistant depot manager in Krakow at that time. So it was, an, it was amazing. And picking those times, you know, China has been a time. Uh, Africa is, is coming again now. The Middle East is interesting at the moment. And think about industries. So I think those conscious choices becomes very helpful in the formation of your career as you go forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. That's a much longer hey. answer than you wanted no, no, no. It's all fine. It's all fine. And then you move from there on to Hungary, right? Budapest.
1: I moved on to Budapest. We, uh, uh, I did a presentation again. You know, every people talk about how they plan the whole career. I was just lucky. I did a presentation because when I was in Poland, we had to make the routes. Where should the truck go? There was no maps. So I went to the military because military always had maps and said, Hey, can I get some maps from you? And they go, Oh no, no. I said, Here's the thing. We're making these Coca-Cola uh, routes and they say, okay, four cases of Coca-Cola, you get the maps. Fine. <laughs> so uh, we we gave them a good supply of Coca-Cola and I got the maps. Um, and then we did what's called a routing. And you go out and you send students out in the street and asking, do you have a shop or not? And if they have a shop, yes, they took down the address. And then we pinned all these into the into a map. And then we took the pins out and rolled them in. And that became the order of the truck. So this I had to present in Vienna. And they liked it and said, hey, why don't you go and uh, run marketing and become the country operations manager for Coca-Cola company in Hungary? And I did that, met my wife. We had our son. It was uh, a really good time. I then changed to the bottling part. Coca-Cola has the company part and the bottling part that you know fills uh, the product, etc. And, uh, and then I went to the... To become the country operations manager in hungary and from there on i became the i became the sales manager and then we were lucky that we had a pretty good uh, lucky we worked very hard and got a very good progression on, on the sales so i presented that in vienna and they said why don't you become sales and uh, and, and distribution director sales and marketing director for uh, for central eastern europe i go why not so i took that and then there was a merger in uh, When I was in Vienna, and actually I didn't like the job. Here's another lesson, Karsten. I hated that job because I used to be the one that could make the decisions. When you move to a staff job, a sales and marketing direction for Europe, you are no longer telling, you're selling your ideas. Very big difference. It's one of the jobs I learned the most in about myself. So when people find themselves in jobs they don't like, it's not bad. Don't keep it for a long time, but it's a great learning and some experience you can put up in, in your backpack. Um, and then from there
0: on, I went to Vietnam. Vietnam. Okay. Now, that, that is worth probably an explanation. So, Coca-Cola, the bottlers are organized in major units. One of the, yes. ba- I think, the biggest bottler for a very, very long time was Coca-Cola Hellenic. And you were part of that Hellenic universe. Now, what made that move into Asia? There must have been a conscious decision somewhere, right? So the conscious decision was, I I find it very important
1: to make a destination. I was one time going in a flight with Douglas Iverster. He was the CEO in the job I had in Vienna. He was the CEO of Coca-Cola Company at that time. And first time in a private plane, I was shaking, I was so nervous, and he sits right in front of me, and I'm sitting there and he goes, so son, what do you want to do? Five years. And I had no idea. I go, oh, I just want to have value. And he, he looked at me and said, you, you got to answer, you gotta earn, you gotta learn to answer that question a whole lot better, son. <laughs> so, so I think about that and said, what do you mean? He said, you need to get yourself a destination. So I developed this destination for myself, which I want to be a general manager in a multiple country environment in the fast-moving consumer good industry. Preferably in the beverage industry, not with Pepsi-Cola. That was the destination I put for myself. And I basically followed that for a long, long time. And multiple country environment, going and get that experience, going to Vietnam and being the sales and distribution director for Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia,
0: certainly added towards that destination. Another great lesson. So, I mean, what was the... I mean, maybe one little, little sidestep there. Explain us this thing between Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. I mean, it's for normal people, maybe not quite easy to understand. What's the what's that competition all about?
1: Um, you know, it's like... You're, it's, it's, it's almost like a derby when your favorite football team uh, is playing. You know, there's, there's two teams. You love one and you hate the other. So, you know... It was so it's interesting because today we're living in an environment where actually openness and you embrace competition to make the cake a lot bigger. In those days, it was cutthroat competition. If we could, um, if, if we could remove a Pepsi display, we were celebrating, uh, instead of building one next to it. So we both could benefit. We were celebrating. We put our display instead of this. We put our stickers instead of this. Um, so it was very competitive. It's, if people were seen drinking competition product, uh, they were at risk of getting fired. So it's very anachronistic old-fashioned.
0: But that's the way it was. It was very, very brutal. Very brutal. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. And and then, so that, that that stint in East Asia. So, I mean, different culture. I mean, very different culture, right? Uh, not developed market. So uh, a different philosophy or different view on, you know, how people uh, kind of act, a different religious system. So what, you know, what what were some major events or takeaways from there, Ulrich?
1: So, you're right. I mean, everything was foreign. It was also the first time where I had no chance on the language. When I was in Poland or Hungary, I can understand a little bit. So you know what's going on. I took 20 lessons of Vietnamese language and I could order a cup of coffee, you know, it was, it was very, very hard. So language was hard. And that means that you are sort of isolated because you don't, don't really know what is being said and being translated. If it was in Polish or Hungarian, I can see whether it translated right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Here I couldn't. Mm-hmm. It's a small thing, but it's a very important thing because you feel a little bit uh, isolated. Um, the second thing was the power and the strengths of women. So I was lucky early on in my career. If you look at sort of in marketing terms, the onion, what are the population? And you have men and women, they're normally sort of similar, right? But in Vietnam, because of the war, there's a big uh, lack of men for certain certain areas. And women, where we, men went to war, women took care of the finances. Women took care of of, of businesses. So women in Vietnam were actually more advanced, even though there's many other chances, but in many ways, they're more advanced. And we had more women in sales than we had in any other areas that I worked in before. And they were just incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm grossly stereotyping now, but that was a big uh, experience for me to see the power of equality. And funny enough, you have to go to Vietnam to figure that out. Um, But that 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 was really a great lesson. And then you learn a lot about yourself. And you learn because we were at that time, this was in 99. There was not that many people looking like us in Vietnam. So you are now the odd one out and you understand how uncomfortable that can be. So I think it built a big understanding of the necessity of embracing other cultures as well.
0: Okay. So being, being the stranger, being the alien one in a, homogeneous society that definitely changes the perspective i can see that. okay okay and uh, then from there on you went back to poland is that right as the first time in a general management slash ceo
1: yes that was the first it was interesting to come back where i started as a almost trainee to come back and 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 be the ceo and um great great job the first ceo job is very special because uh you know, you you take it a little bit too serious because it's your first job. You're like, oh my god, this is life and death, and of course it's not. Um, but it was an amazing job, amazing team, and we were again. It's a little bit about luck at that time. This was uh, I don't I think it was two thousand and um, two, two thousand one. There was a crisis in Poland, and we said, let's. This is the time to invest. Everybody was was de-investing. They were, you know, firing salespeople and we said, let's go for it. We hire. So we took a risk at that moment and made Poland one of the most successful businesses in, um, in Europe at that time. Muta Kent, the CEO of uh, at that time, he was, the lesson is that it's always good to find somebody that inspires you and then they will most likely progress. And as they progress, You'll be, like, you, you bicycle a lot. You'll be in the slipstream of, of them because they know you. They trust you. So, always, Muta has this great saying, never eat alone. Because that's a networking opportunity lost. Never eat alone. If you're out somewhere, call somebody up, eat, eat with them, have a, you know, cup of coffee, because you never know where it is. And even though we are the most capable people in the world, without a good network, you will not be able to progress. So um, that was a deviation. What was the question again, Karsten?
0: <laughs> what was your experience in Poland? But I think that was that was uh, that yes. was great. So I think the first CEO role, and, and many people never make it into the CEO role. And I think um, knowing Coke now also, or the Coke universe for huh, I don't know more than more than twelve years, I guess. Uh, it is also those that are willing to travel, those that are willing to move their families those that are capable, obviously, those that have the network, those are the ones that form a certain, shall I say, elite or group of people mm. that are kind of the pool who then become the general managers, the CEOs that kind of are expected to kind of roam around. So there's also a price that you pay with the family, right?
1: Correct. Correct. I mean, my son, uh, when he, he's been to, I think, he lived in eight different countries. Mm-hmm. He's gone to seven different schools. Uh, and the, the prize, and I think that's important. It's you know, we all talk about um life work balance. Um it, so there will be compromises somewhere. I think it's naive to believe there's no compromises. And and we compromised as a family. Um we compromised on the fact that we moved around, but all my friends meet every Sunday to play football or every Wednesday to go to the movie uh, or you have the same hairdresser, you have the same doctor, you have the same veterinarian. We, we started on Scratch. Actually, my wife started on Scratch every time and took a house and made it a home. And she's one of the leaders that actually inspired me the most. Even though she has not an official title, she actually has taken this family and made us even stronger. There's two things can happen. It doesn't work. Or you get stronger. And for us, it worked and got a lot stronger. And she's been amazing. And just every time I come home and said, I have a new idea. Um, let's go to Vietnam. And uh, then afterwards, let's go to Poland. Let's go to Italy. Let's go here. Let's go there. Um, and every time she said, yes, I'm, I'm ready. So she's
0: one of the leaders that inspires me. I know you're going to ask that question. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah okay i get that and it also i think it also is an example of this that if you are if, if you're in a managerial role it really has to be a team sports right i mean you can't do this alone or you can't do this against your life partner if he or she is not willing to you know fill the other part or organize together to fill the other part yes it's not going to work right that's that's not doable it's just too much stress
1: it's so true i it's mean, so true it's so true. So, so that's, that's a sacrifice we've had, uh, Carsten, that we're traveling around and, and not having the established relation. The benefit is that we have friends all over the world. and My son right. goes wherever and he has, you know, friends everywhere.
0: Was there ever a time where you said now we're, it's too hard on him or where he was kind of suffering? Uh,
1: the first year of any assignment it was like that. Mm-hmm. So many times. And 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 as a parent, you know, in, in, we came from Italy to Germany, and when we when we moved from Italy, Italy in the in the morning, you know, everybody hugs each other, kiss each other, and you know, ciao bello, and everything is fine, and you know, the teachers are joking with the children, and they have a homemade pasta with truffle in the cafeteria, you know, and then he comes to Germany, um, and then it's okay if you want to be my friend, earn it. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but it's just the way it is. It's a different culture. Earn it, okay? You know, we not. You don't wait us to. Don't wait for us to call you. If you want to be part of our group, you got to work for it. And that was very, very hard on him. And for one year, I called my wife and said, "How's um, how's he doing?" And uh, it was the same answer every time. Said, not good. Not good for one year. And I remember I was driving from Fürstenfeldbruck. There's a factory in Fürstenfeldbruck to so walk back to Berlin. And uh, so I did the regular call and I asked my wife, so how's Christian doing? They said, he's doing really well. And I had to stop the car and I just had all the emotions just coming out because that pressure for a year, you know, you're only as happy as the most, uh, the most unhappy person in your family. Hmm. So, so this was very hard. That's one of the sacrifices. Here's the thing. Today, he loves Berlin. And he goes back to his friends in Berlin. It's his favorite city in the world. So, you know, it's it just takes time and very hard, right?
0: Yeah, but he's really a cosmopolitan citizen. You know, by well, it wasn't his choice, but you know, de facto, you have friends kind of all over the place with that, right? So we now. And he's played. He blamed
1: me all along. He 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 blamed us all along. That you just dragged me around without without you know me wanting to do it, and I'm just going to live in one place. And then that one place, I'm just going to stay there. And then he worked in Copenhagen for two years, and then he got a job
0: in Madrid. So So he was infected, kind of. Yeah, Yeah, I'm very proud of him. So we now skipped a couple of places. So from Poland, you became the CEO of Austria and Slovenia for a period of three years. And then from there, moved on to become the CEO of Italy. Um, Yes. And in Italy, there was a special task that you had. I mean, sometimes as a CEO, you get hired for a certain task right and, and because you have that profile to do that so what kind of what kind of profile were you developing as a ceo what kind of a leader have you kind of what kind of brand as a leader have you developed over the years
1: so i be, I, I call myself the plumber you know there's this thing that is uh, that is uh, stuck and somebody needs to come and pull out the the shit that is sitting there to get everything flowing again However, Italy was doing really well uh, when I came there. So that's a very important thing to try, not just to have to turn the business around, but actually continue to accelerate it. The, the previous CEO had done a really good job and the team had done a really good job. So it was actually more like a merger and acquisition. We have acquired as a bottler Southern uh, Italy from Rome and South was for reasons. I'm not going to go into great amount of details here. Um, it has to do with business organization, um, was was separated. We, and we were actually um, merging those two parts. So it was a very interesting piece. And I wanted to do that because it was muscles I had never trained before. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important when you choose a job that is in areas where you're uncomfortable. Because when you are very comfortable, you have to move to the next thing. I believe. And we probably will talk about that a little bit later, but there's something called the beginner's mind in, in Buddhism that is really, really important when you look at different tasks. And I believe that beginner's mind is very, very important.
0: And from there, you went on to become the CEO of Germany. Now, let's yes. zoom in. That was a part a, a time where you came in after a period where many different independent bottlers had been invited or forced to become one a bottling organization that was called One Bottler, and you were the CEO coming next to that. What was your, if you can share, what was the task that you were given? I mean, being the plumber kind of. What was the task that you were given to create or turn around in, in Germany? The guy before me, a guy called Damien Gamel,
1: had done a really good job in consolidating the bottlers, getting getting them into one unit. There was five bottlers uh, left when when um, uh, when, when he basically, before he left, everything became one major bottle owned by the Coca Cola company. Then there was, I think it was 11% of minority sh- uh, shareholders of, of other bottles. Then half year into my stint became 100% Coca Cola, but he's done a really good job on that. Um, he has started to, um, to get growth back. Germany was very hard after the wall came down. Sales were fantastic. And then you had a year, or you had a decade where sales was flattish, slightly declining because of the systemic issues that when there's, when there's 200 people, 200 bottles deciding about one subject, you become very slow. So, so the fundament was set for getting a one bottling company uh, running in Germany. And it was really about starting to take out cost. At a very high level, because we combined these, but you had now 52 marketing managers, 52 sales managers, 52 CFOs, 52 this. I mean, I'm exaggerating. Maybe there was five or six. Um, And so we had to significantly change the culture and the structure of the company. And I think I like a challenge, and this was certainly a challenge to change and have a reduction in force, simply. Uh, for the survival of the company. uh, To have that in Germany is, I think Germany and France would be the two most difficult countries in Europe. It's difficult in any country, but the legal framework made it very difficult in in Germany. So it was, how do we continue and accelerate the growth and how do we take
0: out cost? Sorry, go ahead, Ulrich. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I think there's also a bit of a paradigm shift, right? So when the the Coca-Cola company that I you know, worked for in the beginning was more of a traditional paradigm, I would say. So you're in it, you're in it for life. Uh, it's a family we are all in this together. Um, it's kind of amazing. It was also like a, a symbol for the rise of Germany after the war. Um, Coca-Cola was a cultural element representing the friendship to, uh, to the United States, that kind of thing. And I think what is, has happened then is I would call this more modern paradigm, where it's more like, you know, you go for numbers like on a weekly basis. And if you don't meet the numbers, like what's happening? What are you doing? What's your contingency planning? So it's much more performance management driven. And that obviously has an effect on culture. Observation from the outside. Um, what do you say? I think it's, I think it's very fair and, and
1: it's correct. It's, it's totally correct. And changing that culture. It's very, very hard. So we had a long discussion, and you know you've been super helpful with with that transformation in in the German Coca-Cola business. Do we start this cultural journey when we have to cut? We knew that we have to cut uh, our expenses. Do we start the cultural journeys? And we said, yes, we do, exactly because of that. A cultural journey is not just giving balloons and bong bongs It's being honest about what is ahead of us, and being very communicative to the organization um, about what we're doing, communicative and very very open. And and look, we ended up clo- closing—I uh, don't I think seven eight factories. And you can cast this is hard. Every time you close a factory, there's family involved. There's you know th- this is something that never becomes routine um, because it's so hard. And, and was in, involved in it. And we did one thing in retrospect that was really smart. Because there were two things. There was cultural and then we were, we had, our digitalization was nothing. You know, I took my laptop from uh, and went went to an office and said, there's no, uh, there's no Wi-Fi. They go, no, there's only Wi-Fi in your office. I I was the CEO. I go, yeah, that's really helpful, right? So my office is the only office that has Wi-Fi. So there was a very, very basic thing. So we had to change the culture and we had to change the, the digitalization. Um, and and it was just hard, and 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 the lesson there was was very important. This cultural journey, what we did is we created a guiding coalition. Let me back up one second. Before that, the guy that I knew was going to take my job was uh, was a gentleman called Frank Moulton. He's still the CEO and doing an amazing job, much better than I could do. And he then we made him the HR director. Because we knew culture is going to be such an important part. He was a sales manager. Culture is going to be such an important part. And negotiating with the unions in Germany is very important. And we need somebody with credibility. So he did that for four or five years and then took my job. And the cultural journey was we put what we call the guiding coalition. 100 people from all over the the business. And there was a forklift driver. There was an account receivable lady. There was 100 people, salespeople, finance people, you know, from all areas. And then we voted on what is the right strategy. I can reveal that we had four strategies I was equally okay with. But people voted on them and said, this is the strategy that we should pursue from now on. So we identified what's our culture, what is the desired culture, what are the gaps and how should we get there. And that was done by this guiding coalition, including, at least in the beginning, all of the workers' council. And you cannot make any changes. It's my belief. If you don't involve top down, but much more important, bottom up as well. And only top down doesn't work. Only bottom up doesn't work, but together. And you cannot delegate strategy to consultants. You cannot, in my view, because the best consultants are your employees.
0: Because they know, they know it. They have the creativity. They also have the passion. Ultimately, for the company, for the organization as such. And what always impressed me is that also, you know, on the so the one hand side, you really, I mean, you close plants, you fire people. Uh, I mean, a lot of them were, went through our coaching. Um, and on the other hand side, you were investing in in culture, and it still did not become cynical somehow. So I think that could easily be something where you say, you know, we're firing people, and then when we do some workshops. I mean that's all kind of cynical, but it really, it really was for those who remain something where they said, "I'm." Being, I, I, we had the feeling it is something that they are behind, which is always amazes me to to do this in that difficult time. So challenging on the one hand side, supporting giving vision on the other hand side, how that can work together. Well, well, thank you, thank you. I almost get emotional because it was very,
1: very not only I do get emotional because it was a very hard period. Very, very hard period. And I also thank you to, to, to you for all the help because um, we should talk about
0: digitalization. And in there, it's all about people. It's not about yeah. software. Before we go there, let me ask you a tough question. Um, so you, ha- you were given funny names by, by people that worked <laughs> in the organization. I mean, the crazy, crazy Viking is one of the most nicer ones. Um, <laughs> we had people crying um, in, in, in the sessions. We had people venting about you for hours. Um, because there was such a there was such a perceived pressure, obviously, in this cultural change, in this "am I losing my job" kind of change. So you were putting an enormous stress on the organization. Um, how did you cope with that? Because you're, I mean, you're actually a nice guy, I know that, but uh, there's also that side of you where it can be really edgy. How did you How did you look in the mirror? What What was challenging about that for you?
1: Uh, I think everything is, is challenging because, you know, you know that, you know that you have to do this for the business to survive. But if you are part of the people who have to depart, that's also about your survival, mm. not just the company's survival. So the only thing that I think make you sane in situations like this is you do everything you can for the people who has left. Um, and that means we did a lot of our placement. You've been very helpful with, with, with that. Uh, we gave significantly better leaving packages. The industry was angry at me. Mm-hmm. I got yelled at by everybody in Germany in my time, by the customers, by the union, by the employees. So, uh, that's why I said it was very hard and I get emotion because it was probably the toughest job I ever had. But the only thing is that you do absolutely the best you can. For the survival of the company, that's why you're there, and the improvement of the company, but also of the people who are there. And yeah. um, and uh, I was one time, funny enough, in Fürstenfeldbruck, and I and I talked to a guy there, Rudi Greimel, who was the head of that area. And we were sitting and we were talking, and we were almost talking about, oh, yes, let's see if we can find ten more positions we can save and that was a moment when i realized this is time to look for something else because it's almost becoming routine and that's very very unhealthy so so it's very hard to deal with the only thing you you can do is do whatever you can the best we kept track of we kept track of how many people that left us have gotten a new job we were at 95 97% you know what there's still 3% but when they left we called them back 6 months after and said okay Me, but the the, the HR department, and say, okay, what are we, or the managers, what are we, you know, have you got a job? Anything else we can do. And I think that that gives you uh, some comfort, but it's not easy. And and nobody goes to work to try to piss off people. Nobody goes to work to be a bad guy. And if they do, then uh, they shouldn't be there. I have a favorite saying that if you can do tough things, don't be a leader. And if you enjoy
0: doing tough things, don't be a leader too. There is something I would like to point your attention to. Um, At Leadership Choices, we have um, a special academy. It's the Academy of Choices. And this is the place where leaders come to learn. And we have one exciting program that I think every leader can benefit from because it is introspective. It... uh, changes the way you communicate it creates more impact um, and also more understanding how teams and organizations evolve and also uh, it strengthens the leadership of uh, individuals and of the teams they lead and this is our coaching master program the coaching master program is a journey that has been designed by professionals of leadership choices and what I like most about it that is that it was designed by their own, um, desire to build something like that so uh, it wasn't a top-down thing it was really a decision that came from the people that make leadership choices and this is what it makes me so proud um, of this team so let me talk you through this a little bit so the idea is really that um, the way we communicate has a strong impact on our effectiveness as leaders and that we don't see coaching as a technique but that we rather see it as something that is a way of being, that is a way of communicating, that's a way of thinking, of feeling. It's an attitude in other terms. And this is what this program is about. It's modular, it consists of five different modules. Um, All in all, it's not cheap, but you can't compare it to a normal coaching education because it is much more, plus it is already for those who want to become professional coaches, It already has the certification portion in it. So it has everything that you need in order to become accredited or certified with the biggest and most professional coaching um, affiliation, coaching organization in the world, which is the International Coaching Federation. And it brings you right at the doorstep of the ACC or PCC level. So if you're into this, that might be the right program uh, for you that will take you all the way from you know, getting started with your education to actually becoming certified, which is, I think, the biggest quality differentiator uh, these days. And the important thing is the faculty of this program, they are not coaches who just train other coaches. They are coaches who have for decades been coaching other people uh, who make their living from that, who are really professionals, deeply ingrained also into the ethics, into the the professional bodies of the coaching industry uh, being active in the international coach federation and i think this is really a differentiator uh, the module for one talks about the foundations of executive coaching the module two talks about executive resilience how can you practice uh, becoming stronger in face of crisis the third module talks about how do you get your team to top performance what is coaching for leadership teams And the module four is really taking the systemic approach to the next level, which is talking for organizational resilience, meaning how can you coach? How can you help develop organizations to gain more resilience uh, in tough times and adversity uh, that we are facing right now? And there's a fifth module and that fifth module is the accompanying process for those who want to become professional coaches as a mentor coaching process um uh, and and this mentor coaching really helps you to get into the art of powerful questions of deep conversation of deep listening deep thinking and how um yeah this is how this can be applied who are the faculty faculty are all valued members of the leadership choices community we have peter Lewe and doris fundesant who are the the heads of this program uh we have richard we have anna we have uh, myself who are playing a role with this and uh, taking over some of the modules, and we are very much looking forward. Um, If you are interested, please get in touch. Um, Send me an email, carsten.dreth at leadershipchoices.com. You can also find more about this and links in the show notes for this podcast. And now back to our conversation. This Coca-Cola universe is like always unfolding, always kind of developing, always trying to optimize itself. And then there was a new move kind of to to even aggregate further, like preparation yes. of the European merger and later also parts of, of Asia. but before that there was an important step to kind of upgrade the level of technology to 21st century, so that digitalization so what what was it what you had on the agenda there Ulrich So I mean I, I mentioned the example, which was
1: there was many of those that we didn't have Wi-Fi except in my office um, so on the on the digitalization the customers were unhappy our tools were outdated and we had to modernize it so we started this digitalization and i mentioned before that i believe a digital transformation is dead because the days where you send 10 people to silicon valley and they travel and see google salesforce uh, facebook etc and then they come back And say, okay, now here's what we're going to do. They're so gone. Because they're going to get rejected like nothing else. Those 10 people. Those are the 10 people that have been to San Francisco. They're crazy. And they don't understand our business. So a digital transformation is that because you need a business transformation. And a digital transformation is where you have this vertical of digitalization. Where business transformation is across the whole company. And... And uh, that lesson became very clear to us. That became part of the guiding coalition. What are we actually doing in digitalization? To make sure that we can get people out of the offices, into, out of our offices, into the shops and talk to the, the customers. Um, very, very important. That we could become much faster than our competition. That we could deliver a better service uh, than our competition. Uh, became very important. And, and I'll say this. I always believed, so one of the lessons, Carsten, I know you're going to ask that. One of the lesson is, or was, digitalization is all about people. This sounds so cheesy, but it's a fact. So we developed actually, when we finished it, and, and we sort of in, in post reflection, we call it PA, post action review. Um, we said, okay, what 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 have we learned in this journey? And I applied that in my next job in Salesforce. And it's a five C's. And I think they're helpful. Five C equals transformation success. And those five C's are commitment, culture, customer success, or customer focus, cloud, and campaigning. So if I very quickly go through those, the first one is commitment. Any digital slash business transformation starts with a commitment. So... I will always ask CEOs when I go and help them with the transformation. So how committed are you? Oh, I'm very committed. Okay, what's your budget? Because there's commitment about money. What's your budget? The first part, commitment. Oh, and it doesn't mean you need to spend more money. You need to shift money focus. and You know, Adidas uh, took all the TV money and put it into digital. That's a big commitment. Um, So what is a commitment? What is your commitment to you, Mr. CEO, most of the time a man, of letting your power go because it's actually also about democratization of, of information. We gave most information to everybody what we could do legally. And everybody said, are you not nervous about giving all this information to the people um, that might misuse it? And we all said, no, we are more nervous about the people that are there not having the information they need to do a good job. And today change of speed is so fast. That if you don't give information as close to the point of impact as possible, you'll be slow. Um, And slowness will kill you. So the first thing is really about commitment. The next thing is about culture. And there, you know, I've learned that technology, I used to think that you should change the culture to be ready for technology. Actually implementing technology helps you to change the culture. Uh, example, you know, if you in- introduce Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever, you start to work differently. Because you might be the boss on one subject, I might be the boss on another one, and, um, Caroline might be the boss or the leader of something else. So technology will help change the organization, you know. The, I, I used to say that, uh, when Napoleon stood in front of at Gate, you know, he had cavalry, foot soldiers, uh, you know, artillery, etc. And it was the same in the way we organized until a very few years ago. It was me, the CEO, and everybody has to come to me and I have to take this It doesn't work. So that helps. So first is commitment. Second thing is culture. And then customer centric. Most companies look at their company from the offices and forward instead of looking from the customer backwards and apply design thinking. So what are the real ways that you actually Drive value for the customers instead of how do you save a little bit of money for yourself or how do you, you know, improve your processes. Start with the customer. We did something really simple in, in, in Coca-Cola. Um, I don't know how many times I looked at ROIC, Return on Invested Capital. And then you sort all your projects and you get into the boardroom and say, oh, this has the biggest ROIC and let's work on it and, you know, biggest a, you know net present value or whatever. This is the biggest, let's start from that it never works because it's most likely also the most complicated and the one that has the biggest resistance. So we flipped that around and said, we don't want to talk about ROIC. We want to talk about ROPE. ROPE is return on pain points eliminated. So we, we, we blocked we did a simple two by two and said, okay, what are the pain points? And that's all you know. Uh, Takes too long to get winter tires. Uh, our uniforms does not hold the right tools. And then you have, what's the pain point for the customer and what's the pain point for the organization? And the biggest pain point for the organization and for the customer was it took us one month from a cooler has been sold in till it hit the store. Frustrating for the customer, frustrating for our employees. And it's not the most strategic problem you have. And it was not the biggest right, but this was what broke through the digitalization process in, in, in Germany because people believed in it. They could see it actually happened. Many times you make this big project and you stand up and you're, this is going to be the best ever. And 24 months later, there's more paperwork, there's more bureaucracy and you have achieved nothing. People are, have a fatigue of major products in the organization. They want something that works now. So that was one thing, you know, moving from rope to rope. On, um, on, on putting the design thinking in place. And then now, point number four, cloud. It's obviously, we're in a cloud environment, you need to be able to see everything everywhere. So everybody needs to see everything everywhere. But here's the interesting part. So far, we've not talked about technology, even though this is a business transformation, digital transformation. Step number four is technology. I, of course, think Salesforce is the best, but there's a few possibilities out there. And then, and then the last point is campaigning. Campaign it. You need to be, as, as, as a senior team, campaign it. Lead it. Make, uh, we had, give me five. You know, these were the five things that you need to be doing. Um, and just changing the way people look at it. How do we grow this specific store 5%? And I've still not seen a store that couldn't grow 5% of Coca-Cola sales. I've not seen a customer in banking. Right? And I've seen any customer that couldn't grow 5% when you break it down to the very simple area. So on campaigning, uh, it becomes really, really important to make sure that everybody is is on board, uh, on board with this. So I'll say that speed is a new currency, agility is a new strategy, and culture is a new infrastructure. What's the learning on that? That was a long was, answer, sorry.
0: No, that was a great, great answer. And I think that that you put it in perspective, that is the the business transformation, the mindset transformation, that is the first thing, but it is enabled and intertwined with technology. So you can't do it without technology, but with only technology, you don't change anything as well. So it needs to go kind of hand in hand. And what I also like is this idea of in order to gain speed, to give up control, to give up, uh, to make available information to people like further down in the organization. Now, there's one question with that, and then I'm asking uh, every leader who's going through this transformation. So, when you are giving up control and power, that means that somebody else has to take it, and that, that means that they also have to be responsible in an area where maybe it's not very safe to make a mistake. So, how did you create that psychological safety, that space where it was okay to make a decision, it potentially also turned out to be a mistake so that people are not, you know, covering their behind all the time in order to not get fired or, or something like that. So what was your approach to let go on, and, and make them also take the responsibility? Um, I think you're right. This, and this is
1: a journey. We always said, you know, how many people is on board on this journey? And we started, with said, it was about 10. I think when we finished, we felt it was 50, 60% on board. So this is not something that you can immediately get. Everybody's going to clap because people are skeptical. They've seen too much of this in the past. Um, one of the things we did, which I think was a very, very smart move. Um, and it was, it was a lady called Sanam. I think you actually coached her as well. Uh, Sanam is amazing. What a great, uh, what a great, uh, individual, uh, she is. We were thinking about saying, it's how do we do something? Um, to be more socially responsible, shouldn't we? And I said, shouldn't we adopt like, you know, go to SOS Kinder, uh, and, yeah, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. kinder of, yeah, and, and adopt a few children, you know, and, and they, and, and she goes, it's all good, like, um, sana She says, it's all good. Look, um, I think that's sort of greenwashing. She said, and she said, look, instead of, Adopting somebody outside our company. We're going in the middle of a tough time. Um, you know, we have a lot of changes. We have people leaving. Why don't we actually adopt a front liner? I go like, tell me more. I said, okay, here's the thing. We sit here in this office on the 10th floor. The air is a little bit thin. We cannot all think straight because we are up here in, you know, management with a thin air. Why don't we adopt a front liner? And we, go once a month and be with a person for a full day from the very front line to see what we're thinking is happening. Is that really happening? Mm-hmm. It was the most amazing thing to understand where we are, 10, 20, 30, 40% on this journey. And there are so many companies, Carsten, that has Pulse meeting or, you know, Brown Bank meeting where the CEO comes down or, oh, you know, they have a... They have a meeting, and so let me hear what you say, and you talk about it, and then you leave and never follow up. You have this frontliner for one year, and you have twelve meetings to see what really happens. And if I can tell you a very short story, uh, my frontliner was a forklift driver in um, in East Germany, in the East, and and he uh, uh, Geert was his name, and Geert. First, first time I came with him, he said, come on, Rick, I'm going to show you. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and we went into the warehouse and he said, take the Armisen, I don't know what it's called, like sort of like a pallet, a pallet. Uh, so we go on, we go on that. And I'm standing there and it's shaking. I said, why is it shaking so much? He said, yeah, that's why some of us have problems with our bags. I go, okay, let's fix the floor. He said, well, we put in a request for it. I go, what happened? He said, you cancel it. So incredible lesson from a frontliner, because when you sit up there and it says, yeah, 50,000 now, we can wait with that. But you don't see that there's people that has issues when you have an organization of 11,000 people that has issues with their back, small thing. Then he pointed at, it, was, it was big day for me, this day, as you can hear. Then he pointed at the machine, there's a filling. So tell me about this one. I go, okay, uh, rating speed of 40,000 bottle per hour, the bottleneck is the washer, it's fully depreciated, which I love because it means, you know, very profitable, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, okay, very good. Forklift drive. And then he, he points at one of the persons and said, now tell me about her. And I couldn't say anything. So he says, interesting, you know more about your machines than you know about your people. Ouch. So, two ouch in one day. But this, I think, is a whole lot better than going and people are afraid of meeting the CEO. So I had the, the forklift drive, the CEO... A CFO, um, he went to, uh, to a person in, in sales in Niedersachsen and, uh, Sanam, she had somebody else. Uh, so, and then once a month, we said, okay, what did you learn? And those were some of the best sessions we had as leadership team. It didn't 100% answer your question, but I think if you don't work on the commitment in both levels, uh, from I, I don't want to say bottom, but from the front line and back. Because you know, headquarters at the back, front line at the front. It's not up, it's not up and down. Um, so that's what we did. Um, and this adopt the frontliner, I think is it was a brilliant little bit by coincidence, like most good things, but it was really, 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 really
0: good. And credit
1: goes to Sanam for this.
0: I like that idea. I didn't actually know about that. That's a great initiative. Um, I think there's a lot of it makes ultimate t- totally sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now one more, one more question to Coke, and then we should move on to Salesforce. What strikes, what strikes me every time I work with somebody at Coke or when we have somebody at a conference, I mean, when people talk about their culture, they get kind of sparkling eyes, right? Even even some of those who have been fired still talk about mm. the golden ages and there's that that huge spirit um, on the one hand side. On the other hand side, when I look about at the product, I mean, with all, you know, please forgive me, it's not the most sensible product on the face of the earth, right? I mean, if if you look at what what does the world need to survive, maybe Coca-Cola is not part of that equation or shouldn't be part of that equation, I don't know. Now, it's not the product. What what is it that makes people so identified with with that brand or with that organization?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. We worked very much. People love the brand or loved more than maybe they do today, but they love the brand. And some of them like the company. It's very important to make that um, uh, distinction. I mean, you know, how can you love a company that reduces your workforce from 11 to 7,000 people? It's very, very hard. But that spirit comes from an ingrained belief that the true heroes of this company are in the front line. Those are the true heroes. They're the ones that, that breaks, you know, that the breaks the barriers every day. And, you know, and break into new business and service the customers. Those are the ones. And Coca-Cola celebrates that. And they work very hard on it. Uh, and you get that in from the moment you join Coca-Cola. That you're only here for a period of time. But in that period of time, you have one job to make it a little bit better than, what, than when you give it, hand it over to the next generation and what it is today. I mean, my father used to say, if we borrowed a spade from the neighbor. He told me that I'll go back and deliver it. But before we do that, polish it and oil it and make it look almost like new because that's a respect you have for things. So in Coca-Cola, that, that culture is uh, is and was incredible because you're proud. And we look at average serving time in Coca-Cola is much higher than most other companies because it is it is a culture that you just, you just get into. And it's easy to identify with the brand. It's everywhere. You go to a hotel, it's in the minibar. You go to a restaurant, it's in the restaurant. You go to the subway, it's in the vending machine. It is truly within arm's reach of desire. So it's something that is around you all the time. I will say at the end, When I joined Coca-Cola and we sat in dinner tables, my friends, oh, I love your new advertising. This is amazing. Till, you make my children fat. You put plastic in the ocean. So there's been a a, a big shift also in in how popular it was to work for for Coca-Cola. And it's not as popular, even though Coca-Cola, and I love the company, is doing so much doing so much for the environment and to try to reduce sugar. So you're right. It's not a, it's not really a product that we cannot live without, but there are many other products like this. And Coca-Cola is doing more, is doing more than, uh, than, than many other companies to try to improve uh, the world. I know it sounds wrong, but it, but it is, it is a fact.
0: And I fully get that. I fully get that. What's your prediction Coca-Cola in 10 years' time? I know it's hard and you're still part of that ecosystem, but I mean, is there is that is that a place to stay? Is there will there be a, a place for a brand, for a product like that in 10, 20 years' time? Hard question. And I won't call you on that and tell you. Actually, I will, but. just <laughs> yes, do it.
1: We might say the right thing, but our conclusion will be wrong. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like the thesis. Um, so I think there's an incredible movement going on at the moment where consumers are not looking at brands like they did in the old days. So a brand gave you a consistent experience. Everybody can do that now, you know. They give you a consistent experience. Brand had a pretty much consistent price. Today, we have much more transparent pricing than ever before. Brand was available everywhere. Today, when you start a shop, you're available globally. 15 seconds after you launched your your shop, you're available globally
0: Mm.
1: because of the internet. So those traditional values of branding has disappeared. What's going to happen? What is happening is consumers and customers are more worried about the character of a company, not just the product itself. Mm-hmm. So what is the character? How do you really do? And how much is greenwashing? And how much is, you know, you say something but do something different? And coming back to the German turnaround within the organization it was very important to do what we say and keep what we promise even when it's unpleasant. So I believe there's going to be a massive shift to the character of the company. Do I trust this company or don't I trust it? We're in a trust-based economy. Do I trust this company? Don't I trust it? Do I trust what they're doing? Can I identify with what they're doing? Uh, and, and that's going to happen. So marketing is going to significantly change from building brands, product brands, to building character of companies. And you see that happening. So I don't. it's not really a prediction. And I think Coca-Cola will make that shift, but, um, they are, you know, the old, the old traditional companies will be struggling because of the legacies. It's easier to start now and accelerate than having to change everything you've done for 120 years. And it's a, it's a conundrum that we see, we're seeing at the moment. And, you know, best example, and then we can, it's a segue to Salesforce. When Salesforce got into Dow Thirty, it replaced ExxonMobil. Uh, if you're looking for something that data is a new oil, that's a very good example. Mm-hmm. Salesforce replaced ExxonMobil in in uh, in Dow Thirty.
0: And here, Wirecard was replaced by Delivery Hero. I think so. There's think examples <laughs> exactly. in both words, right? So, um, exactly. But let's let's look at that, Ulrich. So on the one hand side, you guys had worked together. Sales, You were one of the biggest customers of Salesforce in Europe, I would think. Um, and then you made the move over to Salesforce. Now, those who don't know Salesforce as an organization, so Mark Benioff is the founder, and he is a very special kind of person. He's a Silicon Valley kind of icon on the one hand side, but then he's also very spiritual. He's Going to retreats to AMA, he's meditating. There is a lot of doing good initiatives, a lot of things that people here might raise their eyebrows about and be cynical. Um, but it's a it's a culture and a brand that is very much loaded with purpose, with deeper values, with humanity, even though it is at it its core a CRM solution, you know, on steroids, but still it's you know, it's not Mother Teresa or an NGO, it's a for-profit business. How did you experience that culture and what made it attractive what was credible what were you cynical? I mean these kind of things Tell us about
1: that, please okay so so Salesforce first why, why did I join Salesforce? We've done this digital transformation that actually was a business transformation and um, and we were the we were the one that was most ahead in the Coca-Cola system and we were probably one of the fastest uh, uh, at, we're fast at adopt, adopting Salesforce in Germany. So I got to work a lot with them with Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce has something they call Dreamforce. It's, uh, their annual event take place in San Francisco. Uh, 120,000 people participate. 120,000 people. And it's streamed to about 10, 15 million people globally. And this is when I looked last time. So it's probably much more now. Um, mm-hmm. And Coca-Cola Germany became the showcase for this in this uh, Dreamforce for everywhere in the world. So I got very close to uh, to the Salesforce people, and I just totally loved that culture. One of the objectives when I joined—we uh, didn't talk about that—when I joined Coca-Cola was to make sure we sold the bottling piece because Coca-Cola don't want to own the bottles forever. So it was sold. There was a merger, and there was. Uh, and then my job was changing and I didn't want to have that job. So I took some time off and actually, uh, inspired by Mark, I went to Plum Village to, um, in, in near Bordeaux in France, which is, uh, Han, which is, um, uh, 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 mindfulness. It's not religious, it can be, but it can also not be, uh, uh, mindfulness. And I wanted to do that in that six months ahead off, So I went for, for a week to the, to this camp and, and, and did a lot of mindfulness. And that's a part of, of Salesforce culture, what you said. And I got close to that culture because of the transformation we made in Germany. So I took a, some time off and then Mark Benioff, uh, I actually wrote to them and said, I'd love to join Salesforce. And it's about never eat alone because I've been to a dinner where I sat next to Mark. And when I told him I want to join Salesforce um, and I was tired, because of what we talked about before, of all the people that need to, you know, need to let go, et cetera. So I wrote him and said, I love your culture. I don't know whether you have a job, but that's where I would like to work. And I was without a job at that time. I just finished in, because in, I I didn't want to work for Coca-Cola with a less responsibility than I had before. And when we had this big merger, it became vert- verticalized. And that means that I'll be a glorified salesman that I didn't want to be. It's a very good job, but when you're used to doing more, it's not good. Then you're just going to be in everybody else's way. So, Mark, um, I wrote to him, I'd like to have a job with no, and he said, What job? I said, One where there's no responsibility for people, because I've had it since my army days, and I want to have time for myself. And if you're a good leader, (laughs) you spend more time on your people than doing yourself. You always come last. One thing I learned in the army as an officer, everybody eats. And if there's no food list, you're the one that don't get the food. The officers don't eat first. Soldiers eat first. So um, as a leader, that's one thing I applied throughout my career that is about people first. And you're the last one. Um, and then um, Mark said, so what job? Yeah, I said one without people. Uh, one without a target, because target gives you uh, stress. And having worked for American companies for 120 quarters, 100 quarters at that time, I was not ready to have a quarterly target. So I said, one without people reporting to me, one without uh, targets. And he wrote back and said, do you think that really exists? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I said, it's I don't That's a perfect know application does. letter, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so uh, I wrote back to him and said, I don't know, but if somebody can figure it out, it must be you. And, uh, and he said, come to San Francisco. I went to San Francisco. Uh, we spoke and he said, okay, I have a job for you, which was a uh, strategic customer advisor. And so, no people. I worked with
0: customers, and I didn't have any targets, which makes sense uh, because it come
1: from the customer
0: side, from the sales perspective, right?
1: Totally. So, you know, Mark, and he, then when we got into the discussion, him and Keith Block, who was the and Pauli sumner with the three I, I spoke to. I told them I'm not a technol- technological expert. They said we have enough of those. We need somebody who are customer experts. Very smart. So, you know, they looked at the holistic. Where were the gaps, and their customer people and. There was one guy before me, and then since, there's been a lot of people hired into that role. But Mark is amazing. He's one of the people that 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 inspires me. and One of the reasons why I want to go there, uh, I want to go to Salesforce, because of Mark. And, you know, to build your point, when there's meeting, there's monks. So the meetings are in Hawaii. Every year, there's a meeting in Hawaii for top 250 people. But it's streamed to everybody. So the annual, uh, strategy development, he has something called V2 Mom. Vision, values, methods, obstacle, and measurements. They're being talked through, streamed to the whole company. No secrets. Streamed to the whole company. So, and you can ask questions and there's boards going on down. Mark looks, oh, there's a question from, from, from Caroline in, uh, in London. Also, and then he reads a question and it's being discussed. It's incredible. He basically for two days says, this is what we thought about a strategy. Hack it, improve it, criticize it. It's very interesting. But in that meeting, you have an hour meeting and all of a sudden four monks come in and you have an hour of meditation. In the middle of a meeting. Now, I like that. But for some people, this is pretty... Do I really want to do that? So some people maybe take a nap. But um, this thing about... Having a responsibility and a purpose are really, really important. And Salesforce is really strong. And I, and and that's driven by Mark. It's driven by Mark of giving back. I have something called 111. I can only recommend everyone to Google that 111. And it started with 1% of employees time. When he started the company, 1% of equity and 1% of products to be giving to charity. And, um, that's pretty easy when you have no employees, when you have no turnover and when you have no products, but now fast forward, the company is worth, I think 300, 300 billion and about yeah, last, last time I looked, it was like 4 million hours has been given by employees. Seven, 8 million has been given, uh, or, or you know, 400 million has been given to charity and a lot of products in educational institutes, Red Cross, etc., cetera, runs uh, Salesforce at either very, very discounted price or for free. And that drives a lot of purpose in the organization. So I was there with my wife the first time, and we're standing in, the, in on the beach holding hand in Hawaii. And the cultural ambassador uh, of the meeting, uh, Hawaiian, comes in, blows one of these uh, shells, brrrt, and say some some magic in uh, in Hawaiian, and you're holding hand, and they lay this this chain you have from flowers it goes from person to person. I was not sure whether I joined a cult or a company, um, but it drives a, it drives an incredible um, belonging as well. And in Salesforce, it is lived more than most other companies. It is really lived now. There's a lot of pressure in Salesforce as well. Mm-hmm. Trust me. There's there's quarterly um, uh, targets that needs to be met. There's weekly forecast meetings. So in Salesforce, despite you have this amazing culture, there is so much pressure. I'd say there was actually even more pressure in Salesforce than there was in Coca Cola. Oh really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it's Woodstock, and we all just go around like this, right? Uh, there's uh, Smoking there's a business uh, as well. Yeah, exactly, whatever, whatever people do. So, uh, <laughs> so um, there's, but that's an interesting company, and uh, and there's an incredible sense of belonging. Yeah,
0: it's, I mean, and, it sounds And like
1: Salesforce, yeah. give, and Salesforce give you, you know, the Americans call we call it, you know, holiday. They call it PTO, is paid time off. And then Salesforce has VTO, volunteering time off. And that is, and it's a cultural thing. That is how you get that 1% of employees' time. Actually, 1% would be what? Three days, and they give you five days. Five, So a bit more than 1%, give you five days. And they mean it. And all the companies I know, they say, you can take five days. But if you don't, it's okay, right? So uh, we, we had that in Coca-Cola, but I never did it because I was too busy. So I've been nine months with Salesforce. My boss, amazing uh, lady called Polly Sumner. She comes and says, what about your VTO? I said, I'm sorry, Polly, I will not have time for it. I'm so fully booked. I said, that's okay. That, you don't need to do it, but then you don't get your bonus. <laughs> and, I go, and I said, I look at my calendar. Well, actually, yeah, I, f- I found time for it. <laughs> so, this is important, right? It's not something that it's suggested is something you have to do and you are not compensated for not doing it. You're punished. You're not compensated for doing it. You're punished if you don't. So, it's a, Punish is the wrong word, but there's consequences. So that means that that culture
0: is really being lived. Wow, that's really amazing. Yeah, and you were you were moved to Australia, or you moved to Australia for that role, right? I mean, that was a, I was following your career, and I was like, holy cow, what is he doing in Australia now? So how did that come about?
1: So I spent, this, you know, the strategic I uh, did two years of the strategic customer advisor, and um, and that was basically consulting on many different companies around the world on their digital slash business transformation an amazing time. I got an insight to so much more. And now when I want to do my third career, which is board persistence, this was probably the very, very helpful because I got, it was like being a consultant looking into every single at a very high level and the issues the business had. So I've done that for a couple of years. Uh, Mark calls me and say, um, we have an issue in India. We do not like to go to India. And, uh, I go, look, honestly, Mark, I've, I'm this time in my career where a little bit of comfort, and, and not going to a totally different culture would maybe not be the right thing. But, uh, anyway, you've been so kind, I'll do it. So we'll go six months to India on two days before I was supposed to go booked everything. The guy that was the chief revenue officer called me and said, uh, Hey, why don't you go to, um, he was head of international. Would you like to go and run um, Sydney? And that time it was better Sydney. And in Sydney, we had the headquarter for APAC. I said, I'll do that, but I'll have to base myself in Singapore eventually um, because I want to be closer to my son. So we started in Sydney, moved the headquarter uh, from Australia to Sydney. Excuse me, from uh, uh, Sydney, Australia to Singapore. And then I spent uh, a couple of, Couple of years there, running uh, Salesforce as a CEO for um, for APAC, which was incredible. So it was, it was China where we where we got the, you know distributorship going with um, with with some of the people there. And India hired a new amazing lady um, that was the head of the State Bank India. That's a good thing about when you have purpose, uh, purpose-driven culture. You can attract talent that are way better than what the level you can that you can actually offer. But she was very inspired by the by the by the purpose of Salesforce. And then I had an amazing lady in uh, I had an amazing lady in um, in Australia, um, Pip Marlowe, that's done an amazing job as well. And then it was time, it was time to go through and letting the four business units take their own time. And then I want to go back to my son. Because he was in, 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 in Berlin under the, under the COVID. And, um, and I was just, um, I was just really ready not to be in two different continents from my son. And then I could focus on my business that I've had for a while and a private equity pledge fund with a friend of mine that started as a little bit of a hobby, but then became a business. And I'm now in this transition, Carsten. So after this, you have to coach me. I mean this transition of starting uh, board uh, board meetings or board positions where I think that's how I can give back um with all the experience I've had to help you know boards and particularly management team to to get somebody who has made a lot of mistakes in their life and I can help them navigate through the mistakes
0: Wow. What an amazing story, Ulrich. I mean, it's a great career, great that you took us on that ride. And uh, also that, that deep insights that you provided also for the times that were not so easy and were challenging and, and now how that formed you as a leader. Um, so I think we have covered the what's next thing. This is this supporting boards, giving you experience kind of back. What's, what's a question that I haven't asked you yet, Ulrich, that would be, that would be important maybe for our listeners? So I think,
1: I mean, I'm inspired by, by, your, by your mission to make uh, leadership better for organizations, better for people, and better for the business. So uh, I, your, your dog is also having a very important uh, along. This is the, you you it's-, it's so nice. That's one thing that was, that was great in this period where all of a sudden, when people call from home, you get to see their children, you get to see their 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 partners, their husband, wives, whatever. You know, it's just it's just really nice. Now I got to meet your dog, so please say hello back. Yeah, and he's very we, protective of me, so he's trying to defend me against the evil world out there. So. I can see. I think you have a bottom when when it's time to finish, and you let the dog bark, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would ask, so I think there's one thing that that we share. Right? I mean, I'm very inspired by the bicycling tours that you're doing. It's actually really, really inspiring and energizing to see what you can do as a single person. So I would say, you know, you talked a little bit about it, but the question you haven't asked is, what can we do as individual and as organization uh, to make the world a, a better place? It sounds cheesy, but really to make the world a better place. And what can we do ourselves to cope with this insane stress that the world is providing? And it's not going to get any better. So that was two questions. You can pick one, but I want actually before that. Why don't you tell us? Because I'm sure many of the listeners don't know what you're doing, and and I think it's always so inspiring. You've done it three or four
0: times now. What are, what are you up to? It's, it's the fifth time. So there's a okay. project that I'm uh, cycling around the world. Um, it is. I mean, it has become that over time for to raise money for a foundation called CIS, and this provides scholarships to young people between 16 and 20 years of age. When when I was a young man long time ago. I had one of those, and it helped me uh, to overcome a lot of trauma in my childhood uh, by, you know, g- gaining self-confidence, just be- knowing what I'm capable of, or having a-, a glimpse of that idea. And it took me many, many decades to figure out how important it was. And I think 30 years after my scholarship, I started to say, you know what? I think um, I have an idea now. I was, you know, I was donating a salary to a teacher in india i've never met the person i don't even know if it was a real person and so i really figured i want something more real and uh, i'm an endurance sports person uh uh, covered in a or you know stuck in a body who is not um so (laughs) so i was i had this idea why don't why don't i cycle and uh first trip was you know to to italy and then it goes bigger and bigger then eventually was a Uh, trip around the world that I'm now planning and and Coke has been a sponsor uh, I think twice so far Uh, maybe we can make this a more permanent uh, uh, thing little hint Um, and I think so far 93,000 euros were uh, collected and that I think is the equivalent of over 200 scholarships so um, that makes me very happy Um, and I think it's also good for the for the organization those are little things that since you asked that question that's the story Yeah. So I think that's, that's for me as well. Carsten,
1: what do, what do we do? And I, I go to, you know, I'm I turned 50. I, uh, some time ago, when you start to having gray beard, there's other things that becomes important than, you know, just being successful in, in your business and you want to be successful as a person. So I've, um, instead of having a classic 50 year old birthday, uh, I actually instead invited with my wife, we invited friends to go to Cambodia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that became the 50-year-old birthday of building 15 houses. We raised $100,000 and built um, 15 houses uh, and actually a computer center in, uh, in the community center near Siem Rip in Cambodia. And that has been absolutely important. And I think sort of answering the question, all companies should do that. We don't have that tradition as in America. In Europe, and I think all companies should do that. They should give back. But there's one more step we need to change. Because it's called giving back. And that means that you have received something first. And I believe we need to teach in university and in school giving. There's some IP programs that does that. There's some other programs. But it should be part of every curriculum giving. Because at that time, you're not giving back. You're giving. It's easy for me to give back because I've been very privileged. It's easy to download some money somewhere because I've been super privileged. But the true hero is the one who giving. who takes six months off, uh, you know, after they become doctors and go to Africa and, and help improving health or dentists or people that, you know, carpenters or business people that go and help. We can all play a role. So the one pledge I would have is let's all give back. But even before that, let's start making, giving a part of curriculums in, in all of, uh, in all of the, all of the educational institutions.
0: It's a wonderful closing statement, Ulrich. Nothing, nothing further to add. I could continue for a couple of hours more. I think we have, you would have, we find very, very fascinating topics. Ulrich, thank you so much for opening up for, for being so personal and, uh, sharing also your, your inner world with that, your, your passions, uh, it was a great, uh, great time I had together with you. Thanks. And let's, uh, let's continue that in a, you know, a couple of years time or a couple of months. Just check back in and see what's happening. I'm in i I'm in a board toast, um, called Blue Planet,
1: which is, uh, a digital transformation slash business transformation, uh, company in Berlin. It's a startup. I'm going to convince them to sponsor your next trip. So, uh, that's, uh, in return, let's have as many uh, people in Germany looking for digital information, looking up Blue Planet, uh, so okay. we can support you as much as possible. Let, let's do that. And, and by the way, a very, very, very big thank you to you for your help to me, but also to all of the Coca-Cola system and everything you're doing. Thank you very much. All right.
0: Absolutely, Ulrich. Ulrich, thank you so much. You take care and talk next time. You bet. Cheers. Bye. Wow, what a ride, Uh, what a story, what a career, what a life. Um, The different places, um, really amazing. And did you hear um, the commitment um, uh, in front of all of you to actually sponsor the next um, fundraising tour, which will be starting to go through Canada next year uh, by uh, his company that he's now uh, chairing, Blue Planet. So that sounds really, really cool. Uh, And I will come back to that, actually. Uh, I have a good memory for this. So, um, yes, drop us your notes, drop us your thoughts. Um, My email, carsten.draft at leadership-choices.com. You'll find it in the show notes. Do get in touch. Um, If you want to make suggestions for who else should be on this call, um, if you want to nominate yourself, do drop us a line. um, And let's uh, keep in touch. Let's stay in touch. All right. All the best. Stay safe. And see you soon, uh, or hear you soon at the next episode of Leaders Talk. This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by Leadership Choices. If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to talk at choices.com. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.